0: PTJ Podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life.
1: Adding a high force resistance component did not worsen their glucose control.
0: A lot of us used to think that fat just stored energy.
2: Diabetes really was never meant to be a disease because it was never meant to be a permanent state.
0: They are much, much weaker,
2: even
3: though they have large muscles.
0: Welcome to this PTJ podcast discussion, Fat, Muscle, and the Benefits of Exercise for People with Diabetes. This discussion is part of the November 2008 Diabetes Special Issue. Joining Dr. Michael Miller, the guest editor of this special issue, are three authors, Dr. Lisa Stenobiddle. Dr. David Senecor, and Dr. Robin Marcus. And now, our moderator, Michael Miller. Welcome to this podcast highlighting the special issue on diabetes published in the November issue of the Physical Therapy Journal. I had the honor of serving as the guest editor for this special issue on diabetes and was privileged to work with a number of outstanding authors. Three of those authors have joined me today to talk about their papers which share some common themes. Each of their papers presented fascinating and new information on the roles of fat in people with diabetes, especially fat and muscle and about how this fat appears to impair muscle function. Then we will also be discussing what effect exercise can have on this fat and subsequent impairments in physical function. Our three participants all have physical therapy and PhD degrees and all have published extensively in the areas of diabetes and or exercise. First, I'd like to welcome Lisa Stenelbiddle, who is Professor and Chair at the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science and Scientific Director of the Great Plains Diabetes Institute, the University of Kansas, also home of the Jayhawks and reigning national basketball champions. So Lisa, welcome and what would you consider to be your main research focus?
2: Well, thanks Michael and thanks for that Jayhawk plug too. I am a cell biologist, first worked as a physical therapist for years and then went back to cell biology. The KU Diabetes Lab that I direct is really focused on curing diabetes. We work with the islets that produce insulin, trying to find out why they are harmed during the diabetic process and how we can use the basic biology information to create or improve cures that we have for type 1 diabetes at this time.
0: Excellent. Next, I'd like to welcome David Sinicor, who is Associate Professor, Department of Medicine and Program in Physical Therapy, and also Director of the Applied Kinesiology Laboratory at Washington University. Welcome, David. Tell us about your research interests.
3: Well, thanks, Michael. It's certainly nice to be included in such a podcast that deals with an important topic. Basically, my interests have been related to diabetes and diabetic complications, primarily focusing on peripheral neuropathy And we try to determine therapeutic interventions to reduce or ameliorate some of the major problems that accompany diabetes and peripheral neuropathy. These include aspects of sarcopenia as well as osteopenia that occurs in these chronic diseases.
0: Very good. And another muscle expert joins us, Robin Marcus, who is associate professor in the departments of physical therapy and exercise and sports science at the University of Utah. Robin, welcome, and tell us briefly about your research interests.
1: Thank you, Michael, and I'm also excited to be taking part in this discussion this morning. Specifically, what I'm interested in is how resistance exercise impacts muscle hypertrophy and maybe even more pertinent to this discussion, the composition of muscle, including the fat and the lean constituents. Our group is ultimately interested in how these changes in muscle impact function from both a physical performance and also a metabolic perspective.
0: Excellent. So to begin our discussion, Lisa, before I read your paper, Intricacies of Fat, I had no idea that fat was the largest endocrine organ in the body and that it played such an active role in the development of diabetes. Can you explain briefly what goes wrong with fat and its various functions as people develop diabetes?
2: Sure, and it's very interesting to think about fat as an endocrine organ. I recently helped edit a new version of a physiology book, and we had to completely rewrite the endocrine chapter because in the last edition, we didn't even think of fat as being an endocrine organ. And now we also know it has an immune function as well, but I think for today's discussion, it's most important to think about it as an endocrine organ. And as such, that means it releases hormones. It's constantly releasing molecules. What's so interesting is that in people who are lean, those molecules work a certain way. So one we can think of is leptin. Leptin is released by fat cells. It's a wonderful molecule. It goes to the brain and tells us that we're full and we don't need to eat anymore. It also has an anti-inflammatory effect. So in lean people, it's doing a lot of wonderful things throughout the body. But in obesity, it works in different ways. The fat cells will put out more leptin. And when all that leptin gets to the brain, the brain basically says too much and it shuts down the downstream signaling process. So even though the fat cells are sending signals to the brain saying, we're full, you don't need to eat, the brain never gets that signal. And another one that's directly related to diabetes is retinol-binding protein. Fat cells in a lean person put out just a little bit. It's important in transporting vitamin A. But when we're obese, The body puts out a lot of retinol-binding protein. It goes to the skeletal muscle and it binds to the insulin receptor where it basically stops insulin's action. So if insulin doesn't bind to the skeletal muscle, then the blood plasma glucose levels go up and that's diabetes. That's the definition of diabetes. So retinol-binding protein actually causes temporary diabetes when it's in high levels in skeletal muscle.
0: That's really interesting. And I think a lot of us used to think that fat just stored energy, but you've just articulated all these additional functions that fat has. The other thing that really struck me about your paper is that all fat is not equal, indicating there's lots of different kinds of fat. Can you clarify briefly the difference between these different kinds of fat, for instance, subcutaneous fat versus visceral fat?
2: Sure. We've known for a long time, probably since the 50s, that women who carried a lot of fat around their thighs did not have as high a risk for cardiovascular disease as men who tended to carry his weight around the waist. But now we're starting to understand the pathology of that at the cellular and molecular level. So again, a lean person carries subcutaneous fat and they have some other fat around the organs, but small, small amounts. As we put on weight, we tend to put more weight on around the organs, visceral fat, and then also we add more subcutaneous fat as well. Fat also has an inflammatory component. There are macrophages, which are inflammatory cells that normally reside in fat if we're a lean person. They're not very active. They don't do a lot. In fact, they can have an anti-inflammatory effect. But when we're obese, We get more macrophages, in fact, maybe more macrophages than fat cells in that area. And we have a local, strong inflammation that's chronic. And that inflammation spreads to the tissue around it. So if the fat is sitting next to the kidney or sitting next to the liver, it spreads that inflammation as well as spreading these inflammatory hormones throughout the body. Because it's localized near the organs, it has a greater negative effect.
0: Before we move on to fat in the muscle, Dave or Robin, do you have any questions or comment?
1: Lisa, can you comment on, in addition to visceral adiposity and its negative impact, the impact of fat within the muscles of the leg in particular?
2: Sure. Um, Histologically, if you would look at the tissue you would see not only fat cells surrounding muscle, but within the muscle itself, there'll be some fat deposits, lipid deposits. And those lipid droplets are normal in a healthy person who's fit. We use those as a source of energy and they're constantly being turned over. But one theory is that in obesity and especially associated with sedentary lifestyle, those lipid droplets grow in size and they're not being turned over now as a source of energy within the muscle or within the hepatocyte or within the kidney cell. They're just sitting there, and that becomes an unhealthy state. Well,
0: that's an excellent description and provides a good transition into your study, David, that you did with Tiffany Hilton et al., and you studied the fat in the calf muscles of people with diabetes and peripheral neuropathy. So given these different kinds of fat, how did you distinguish between the various types of fat in and around the muscles?
3: Yeah, that is exactly what we wanted to do. So we are interested in the complications of diabetes, those muscles that may be affected by peripheral neuropathy as well. Peripheral neuropathy and diabetes, we all know that it happens in a distal stocking glove kind of pattern. So... The ones that seem to be most affected in people with diabetes that we see are the calf muscles and the distal muscles, even the intrinsic foot muscles. We studied the calf muscles simply because they're much more accessible, easy to see. We didn't want to study the subcutaneous fat outside of the paramecium. But we wanted to study the fat that's close to the muscles in and around the muscles. And so what we did was with MRI of number of sections throughout an individual's calf and we determined... By excluding the subcutaneous fat now, we could quantify the volume from several sections throughout the calf, from the knee down to the ankle, how much fat is associated with the entire leg if you take out the subcutaneous fat, so in and around the muscles themselves and the individual muscle fibers. And We call that the intermuscular adipose tissue volume or IMAT as an acronym. That's the fact that we were most interested to see what kind of influence that has on measures or interest that physical therapists might have, such as their strength and their overall performance.
0: Okay, so you did this MRI and you looked at the muscle volume, you looked at the amount of the intermuscular adipose tissue and you looked at that in people with diabetes and peripheral neuropathy compared it to the age match controls. What do you consider to be the key differences in the results between those two groups?
3: When you see people who are obese with or without diabetes, clinically, we say, well, you know, they look like they got big muscles and they're strong and they function real well. That's not the case that we found at all. What we found is that the people with diabetes and prophyropathy who were largely obese by World Health Organization standards, they had large muscles. They had a large muscle volume. They also had a large fat volume and they also had a very, very large, three times as much IMAT volume as well. Their muscle cross-sectional area, if you did traditional muscle cross-sectional areas, they were also larger. But then when you go in and we test these individuals and find out, well, are they strong? Are they powerful? They are much, much weaker, have much more disability, don't function nearly as well even though they have large muscles. We're considering that an aspect of sarcopenia,
0: so obesity-related sarcopenia. I thought it was surprising, too, that the muscle volume was similar, but in the neuropathic muscle, there was twice as much intermuscular fat than controls. And then, if I recall correctly, the correlation between the IMAT and the physical performance measure was almost 0.9, which
3: is... Yeah, it was 0.9. So, in other words, the idea is that People function better with lower amounts of intramuscular adipose tissue and that has tremendous implications.
1: David, I also think it's interesting that your findings are consistent with other authors who have at least suggested through either some descriptive or cross-sectional data that people who have more adipose tissue, particularly in the muscle, are more prone to earlier disability, earlier mobility limitations. And it's been suggested that perhaps, and this has not been shown, but perhaps this infiltration of fat into the muscle actually has a negative impact on the muscle's ability to contract.
3: Yeah, I think that's the key aspect that physical therapists are, I'm sure, very concerned about is that you get too much of this tissue in the wrong spots around muscles instead of inside muscles where it could be used as a source of fuel I think that's a key aspect. We still don't know if the idea is that it affects all muscles throughout the body similarly. And the other thing that seems to be the issue is, does the fat need to be inside the muscle? And what kind of fat is inside the muscle if it has deleterious effects on overall contraction speed and force generation and power? That still needs to be explored. So There's a lot of work to be done by doing these kinds of studies.
2: And I have a question too, David. Do you know, are there signs of inflammation in those muscles that are surrounded by fat?
3: That's a really good question. Specifically, we have not looked for signs of inflammation. But I can tell you that there definitely is an overall whole body inflammation. If you look at C-reactive protein in these individuals or even the old markers of ESR, the erythrocyte sedimentation rates. We don't know if that's only from the heart and the heart muscles, but we think peripheral skeletal muscles would likely exhibit increased levels.
0: So we have this muscle with diabetes and obesity that is inundated with fat, and that fat seems to have a number of harmful consequences, including decreased force production and decreased physical performance. And so an obvious question is, can exercise help with these muscle impairments? Robin, I was really intrigued with your intervention study in the Diabetes Special Issue. You went on to measure both the thigh, lean tissue, and then this outcome that you called intramuscular fat. Could you tell us exactly what is the intramuscular fat that you looked at?
1: Sure. Let me give you a couple of definitions. And I think that David defined intramuscular adipose tissue as the visible adipose tissue beneath the muscle fascia and between muscle groups. Our definition of intramuscular fat, which is IMF, is the fat that's deposited within and between muscle groups and that also lies beneath the fascia. So I think that both definitions really are talking about any of the fat that lies within the deep fascial plane of the thigh and discount the subcutaneous fat. Whether it is called IMAT or IMF probably has more to do with the exact technique
0: And then we know that exercise has a positive effect in people with diabetes mellitus. And the special issue contained a number of really good papers reviewing the effects of exercise on multiple outcome parameters. What would you say was unique about your study?
1: Now, traditionally, we think of exercise that positively impacts glucose control in folks with diabetes as aerobic exercise. But more recently, we've actually seen papers that are looking at resistance training Our particular interest with this study was to look at combining a specific type of resistance training, so a high-force eccentric resistance training, with the goal of actually increasing lean muscle tissue with a more traditional aerobic exercise program. And so we compared that group with a group that did a traditional aerobic exercise program only.
0: That did seem like a key addition to the literature, this whole idea of high-force eccentric resistance exercise. Could you tell us a little bit more about the high-force eccentric nature of those exercises?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The model that we use for resistance training is a recumbent eccentric stepper that's actually powered by a three-horsepower motor that drives the pedals of the stepper in a reverse direction. What we ask our subjects to do is to try to slow down the reverse-moving pedals And when they try to do that, they obviously can't beat the machine because it's three horsepower. But when they try to slow down those pedals, they end up getting very high force production out of their knee extensors and also their hip extensors. So that is an eccentric or lengthening muscle contraction. And the value of that is that they can overload their muscles much greater than they can with a traditional progressive resistance exercise program.
0: Yes, and you had some pretty dramatic differences in muscle composition and function.
1: Well, first of all, let me tell you that both of our groups improved relative to their glucose control when looking at HbA1c values. So, aerobic exercise was equally as effective as the combined program. Now, let me also comment that previously, there have been a couple of papers that have suggested that high-force eccentric resistance training actually worsens insulin sensitivity. And so that is one of our key findings that we found, that adding a high-force resistance component of exercise to individuals with type 2 diabetes did not worsen their glucose control. I think that one of the things you have to think about in context of that outcome is that the previous papers that have been published on eccentric exercise and insulin sensitivity have been single events of eccentric exercise to naive muscles and we all know as physical therapists what that feels like and that is probably due to an increase in inflammation caused by muscle damage. The protocol that we use is a progressive increase in force. So we ramp these folks up over about a two to three week period of time until they're actually working at these high forces. So we believe but that may be part of the reason why this does not have a negative effect on glucose control.
0: That's very interesting. And David or Lisa, do you have any other thoughts on this study or their results? Actually, I found
3: this paper to be an outstanding contribution. I really did. I was very struck with the changes that she found in the thylene tissue muscle. Even in the face of a significant decrease in BMI. So what she was able to show is that defyline tissue seems to be increased despite them losing weight. And that's very exciting. That has tremendous implications for physical therapy. I think people who are obese who have diabetes, we want to improve their diabetic condition, but we also want them to reduce their obesity I was a little bit perplexed only in the sense that she looked at thigh muscles and typically they're not ones largely affected by peripheral neuropathy. So there may be some differences to how neuropathic muscles might respond to this kind of exercise training.
2: I'm going to throw something in here now. I throw this in because I don't want us to leave with the impression that we can only offer very prescribed specific kinds of exercise to battle obesity but we can't forget just helping people to increase their activity and an exercise physiologist friend of mine in Switzerland, Uli Schweizer uses the term created steps. How can I create steps in my day to just increase basal activity because it probably is more related to obesity than we ever realized and especially in prevention.
3: You know I don't think we can ignore that these people with type 2 diabetes are largely obese and we need to also take an active role in controlling their diets and their nutritional aspects of their program. So people take in way too many calories, that's why they're obese and largely becoming inactive. So I think optimal approaches to people with diabetes, type 2 diabetes and neuropathy includes dietary weight loss as well as increase in physical activity. The two epidemics of obesity and diabetes now merged to one as diabetes. Physical therapists are able to approach and optimize both.
2: And I think that if we go back to those hormones that the adipocytes release, it really helps to put a kind of a unifying theory on this for me, and that's called the thrifty gene theory. And it has both to do with our diets and our sedentary lifestyle. And that is that these molecules evolved as survival molecules. So retinol binding protein, which causes insulin resistance, that was a good survival mechanism because when we, 100,000 years ago, when we were in times of plentiful food, we needed to store that food. We needed to store that energy in the form of fat. We didn't need to use it in our muscles then because the body knew that there was going to be a long winter, something was going to happen, that there would be times of low food. And so we needed to store that fat. And what I tell people as I go around talking about this is diabetes really was never meant to be a disease because it was never meant to be a permanent state. Insulin resistance was an adaptive mechanism to help us survive times of food shortages.
0: Well, that's a fascinating wrap-up to the discussion, and I feel like we could talk all day on this, but who knew that fat could be so exciting? Uh, So fat is very complicated. It has important metabolic roles, but these go askew in obesity, and especially with diabetes. Fat's laid down where it isn't supposed to be, including in muscle. We've learned that this appears to be uh, very detrimental to muscle function, We've also seen how exercise can help reverse these impairments, and clearly what struck me is how physical therapists are in an optimal role to help people exercise safely, to increase their movement, not only their exercise, but their activity. So I'd like to thank Lisa, Dave, and Robin for their papers to the special issue and their participation in this podcast. Thank you for joining us. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We welcome your feedback. Email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825. Visit ptj online at www.ptjournal.org. Thanks for listening.